Joshua chapter 4 is, we, is where we left off, uh, and so around verse 10 is where we left off. I wasn't here last week, so uh, the rookie filled in for me. But, uh, but we're here in verse 10 of Joshua chapter 4, and uh, just to orient ourselves again with, with where we left off last, um, God has delivered the Israelites after 400 years of slavery. And he has worked on the reluctant heart of Pharaoh of Egypt through a series of 10 plagues to finally let his people go, God's people. But because of their disobedience, they would spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness in the Egyptian Sinai before they would eventually make it to the promised land. And the one to take him in the promised land would not be Moses, but it would be his protege, Joshua, Yeshua, Yahashua. His name means the Lord is salvation. And so when the Israelites leave Egypt and they come up uh, using this um, satellite map, they come up uh, across the Sinai Peninsula underneath the Dead Sea and they're going to enter the Promised Land. They're going to enter Israel uh, going from uh, east to west. But they uh, will first camp at a place called Shittim in the Hebrew, in, in the New King James, it translates acacia grove. It's, a, it's a, a shrub, it's a small tree, it's a flowering tree. And, and there were obviously many of them in this area because it was called Shittim, meaning acacia grove. And so that's where the Israelites will settle at first. Now there's three, three and a half million of them. And in order to get into the promised land, they have to cross the Jordan River. They're going to go uh, across the Jordan River, and eventually they're going to take Jericho. But how are they going to get across the river? And so God instructs Joshua to tell the priests that they are to carry the Ark of the Covenant, uh, hoisting it on their shoulders, this sacred object that was a representation of the presence of God. And the priests were to go to the Jordan River, put their toes in the Jordan River, and the Bible says in Joshua it was at flood stage. And so they were going to trust God, put their feet into the Jordan River. And as soon as they did, the Bible says that God rolled back the waters of the Jordan River up to a city called Adam, which is about 16 miles to the north. Now, why would God roll back the river for 16 miles? Why not just, you know, 100 yards or something? Because there's three to three and a half million Jews who are trying to cross the Jordan River. And if it was only small enough for two to go abreast, there's three and a half million of them. Two abreast would make a line that was 800 miles. It would take them a month to get across the Jordan River. So God opens up a swath, and if 5,000 would march abreast, it would be a swath of about three miles, and they could do it in a day. So do your math. If 10,000 abreast, they could do it in a half a day. 15,000 abreast, they could do it in, you know, just a few hours. And so God rolls it back 16 miles to allow them to cross over in a matter of a few hours. Because what the Bible tells us is that the priest stood in the middle of the Jordan River, now it's dry ground, holding up the Ark of the Covenant, and the people would pass by while the priest would stand there in the middle of the Jordan River with the Ark of the Covenant covenant hoisted on their shoulders. After everybody crossed over, then the priests themselves went, and then the waters rolled back. But God um, did this miracle to allow them to cross over into the promised land on dry ground. And God also instructed Joshua that he was to take 12 stones from the dry riverbed of the Jordan, 
uh, to take across to the, uh, to the western side of the Jordan River and pile them up, these 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and that they were to do the same at the location where the priests stood in the middle of the Jordan River so that they would never forget what God did at this spot. And that when the children would ask, what, are the, what is this pile of 12 stones here on the bank of the Jordan River? That the fathers would be able to declare to them the mighty hand of God. And the 12 stones piled up in the middle of the Jordan River, you know, to this day no one has discovered. But they're there somewhere, unless over time it's washed away. But I suspect it's still standing there. Between Shittim and Jericho, though, we're going to read here tonight in chapter 4 that there's a town called Gilgal. And Gilgal will serve to be the base of operation for their offensive against the city of Jericho. And so that's where we left off here at verse 10. Uh, because Gilgal is such a prominent location throughout chapter, the rest of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, we're going to be looking at different things that Gilgal can teach us as a location because of different things that transpired there that are still important for us to notice even today. So in Joshua chapter 4, verse 10, it says, So the priests who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried, you know, because they're probably wondering, how long is the water going to stay back? And the people hurried and crossed over. And then it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over, that the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed over in the presence of the people. And the men of Reuben, the men of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed before the children of Israel, as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 prepared for war crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. Now, by the way, you remember that there, again, are 12 tribes to Israel. But two and a half of these tribes requested that their land allotment be on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which today on a map is Jordan. And Moses agreed to this. But Joshua instructed them, the, the tribes of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, you guys can stay over here on the eastern side of the Jordan River. That's fine. But you have to help your brothers and sisters when they go into the promised land to defeat the, the people that are there ahead of them. So you have to at least go over and fight for them. And then after they have secured the land, you can go back over to the eastern side of the Jordan River and you can live there. And so the tribes of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh went over. They crossed over, and it tells us there were 40,000 between those two and a half tribes. There were 40,000 fighting men who were armed for battle. They cross over with their brothers and sisters as they enter now into the promised land, in, into the land of Israel. And it says in verse 14 that on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. You know, again, consider, this has got to be a difficult thing for Joshua because Moses was a prominent leader. He was known and seen, and the Bible says that Moses was a prophet of God. And those are some big sandals to fill. You know, if you come along after Moses, not so easy to get the respect of the people that they had for Moses. I mean, this is a hard act to follow, if you will. But yet Joshua was obedient. He followed in Moses' footsteps. God raised up Joshua to be the one to actually take the people into the promised land. And Joshua 
And just as Moses had taken the people led by God out of, the, out of slavery in Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, now it was Joshua's turn. And when the waters parted of the Jordan River and Joshua takes over the Israelites into the promised land. And remember, these people had never stepped foot in the promised land before. Only their ancestors had. For the last 400 years, these people have been slaves in Egypt. So this generation that comes out of Egypt dies in the wilderness. Their children actually enter the promised land. And these folks had never been there before. So when they step foot into the promised land, a fulfillment of God's promise, then God said that God turns their hearts with respect to Joshua. And in that day, God exalted Joshua in their sight and they feared him. They had a healthy fear. It's, it's a respect that they had for Joshua. Boy, he's our leader. He's actually delivered. He actually took us into the promised land. And so they exalted him. They respected him. They feared him in that day. And verse 15 says, And then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up from the Jordan. And Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass, when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. What a sight that must have been. You know, to see God roll back the water because the priest touched the water with their feet in obedience to what God had said. And then they're standing now safely on the western bank of the Jordan River. And they're looking back now. And the priests then come out from the Jordan on the, on, onto the shoreline there and then God rolls the water back. I mean, what a sight to behold here. And it says in verse uh, 19, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in, here's the word, Gilgal. Here's the town, Gilgal, on the east border of Jericho. Okay, so again, as the map shows you, they crossed the Jordan River, but before they get to Jericho, they camp at Gilgal. So Gilgal is located to the east of Jericho. And it says in verse 20, And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. And then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So if you're taking notes, there's a couple of things that Gilgal teaches us. Gilgal, number one, is a place for remembering. It's a place for remembering because these 12 stones were to be a constant reminder to them of what God had done, the faithfulness of God to deliver them into the promised land just as he had promised. And it is important for every single one of us never forget to forget the goodness of God. We as human beings have a, have a propensity to forget even the good things. And so it is important for us to never forget the good things that God does because guess what? You're going to need it for the next time. Because you're going to be able to rely on, oh, that's right, God was faithful then, he's going to be faithful now. But when you forget his faithfulness, then you fear the present situation. 
So it's good to always, you know, faith builds upon faith. When you see the hand of God, remember that. And so Joshua set up these 12 stones there in Gilgal, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, as a reminder to them to remember the faithfulness of God. And I want you to notice that in particular, and I alluded to this a couple of weeks ago before we got to this verse, but again, verse 21 says that then he spoke to the children of Israel saying, when your children ask their fathers in time, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall let your children know. So, men, listen, if, if you are a godly man with children, it is your responsibility, not solely, okay, because moms can contribute in wonderful ways to the spiritual development and nurturing of, of your children, but the responsibility rests squarely on the shoulders of the fathers. You know, statistically, how many men are in jail because they didn't have a father? The father figure is critical in culture. The father figure is critical for the family. Now, you know, whenever I talk in these terms, I'm quickly reminded, look, obviously not every family has a father. And some of you ladies are doing double duty as single moms, trying to be a, a, a mom and a, and, and a dad and because you're the only one in the household. And the Bible reminds us that God is a father to the fatherless. And so God will help you and God will minister to your children. Um, and God will provide other godly men who will be influential in the lives of your children to help. But... That aside for the moment, where there's a family, where a dad is someone who loves Jesus, your responsibility is to help raise your kids in the ways of the Lord. And that falls on the dads. When the children ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Then the dads are to speak up and say, well, this is where Israel crossed over on dry ground. This is where God did a mighty thing. And don't you ever forget the faithfulness of God. So this is a responsibility that we as men, as dads, need to own in, in the spiritual um, leadership, the loving spiritual leadership of the next generation. And I love the way the chapter ends, that all the peoples of the earth may know, may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Well, into chapter 5, so it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, closer to the Mediterranean, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Now, you're going to find in this passage, and um, remember when we were reading about Rahab back in, in chapter 2, uh, that God's reputation precedes him. And that people hear. This is why they're going to be judged. Because they hear about the mighty hand of God, but they do nothing in response to the mighty hand of God. They don't surrender to God. They, their hearts melt 
they're afraid. These kings of the Amorites, the kings of the Canaanites, you know, it says that their hearts melted. There's no spirit left in them because of the children of Israel. But they do nothing to surrender themselves to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But for the, for the meantime here, God's reputation has preceded them. And so these kings on the earth here, in the, in the Canaanites and the Amorites, they're, they're all fearful. And so you're going to see here in a moment, this is a good thing. Because um, what God tells Joshua to do here with, with the, the Jewish Jewish men in particular, it's good that these, that these kings, these enemy kings, are going to be paralyzed with fear because the guys here are going to need some time to recover. What am I talking about? Read on. Verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Now, it isn't that one guy got circumcised twice. That's not possible. What it means is, you know, there was a generation that came out of, out of Egypt and they were circumcised, but now this is a whole other generation. And apparently for the last 40 years, as they've been wandering in the wilderness, the next generation of men were never circumcised. Now they've come into the promised land and God gives this directive. I want there to be consecration before there can be conquest. I want you to draw near to me and I want you to purify yourselves. And part of this sign of the covenant of God is circumcision. Now, point number two is that they were, Gilgal represented a place of recommitting their lives with circumcision. Now, let me just talk about this a little bit. And, uh, you know, this is, this is not going to be like biology 101, but I am going to talk about it from a biblical standpoint because when we talk about circumcision and covenant, you know, you might look at that and think, what in the world is happening here? Let me read on and explain. Verse 3, and so Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. I mean, that's what happens when you circumcise a few million guys. Um, <laughs> verse 4, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. So that was the first generation who were circumcised. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. All right, now, your attention. Here's the deal. In order to understand the purpose of circumcision, you have to understand covenant. God made a covenant. There were a few different types of covenant throughout the Old Testament. And there's one great new covenant in the New Testament. But one covenant in particular that God made was in Genesis chapter 17 with Abraham. When a covenant is made, and by the way, a covenant is a unilateral, unconditional promise that God makes. I'll say it again for you note takers. A covenant is a unilateral, unconditional promise that God makes. All right? And when God makes a promise, he never breaks his promise. And he seals it, the signature is an oath, 
And the covenant often involved the shedding of blood as the signature of that oath that God makes. Unconditional, unilateral. When God made a covenant with Abraham, the covenant was that there was a people that would be born out of the seed of Abraham. That would end up being, of course, the Jewish people. And from that race of people would come a Messiah. As part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, it was not only about a people, it was also about a place. Because in Genesis 15, 18, God promised on oath to Abraham and his descendants a place to live. And that place to live was the territory between the Nile River and the Euphrates River, approximately 300,000 square miles. Israel today only has 8,130 square miles. They've never fully taken the place that God intended when he made on oath to the descendants of Abraham that territory. Now, listen to me on this. You know, right now in the news, out of Gaza have been fired more than a thousand rockets into Israel. And the basis behind it, say what you might, I got Palestinian friends too. I'm I'm, uh, compassionate towards them as well. But say what you might about how this latest struggle started to be firing a thousand rockets is overkill. And why is it overkill? Because at the end of the day, Hamas in particular does not believe that Israel should be entitled to the land. The problem is that God swore on oath to the descendants of Abraham, to the Jewish people, that the land was part of the covenant. And God spells it out with the borders. So we should be praying for the Israelis, we should be praying for the Palestinians. It's always a very difficult thing to see this conflict, but it traces all the way back to Ishmael and Isaac, okay? Um, And by the way, you know, as much as all of us would want to see peace, the reality is peace in the Middle East is not going to happen until the Prince of Peace comes. So we should continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem because the Bible instructs us to do that. And we should have compassion for people who are caught in the crossfire. But if man tries to settle this, uh, man's just going to make it worse. I, I'm, I'm sorry to say, um, e- even as much as, you know, President Trump tried to bring some peace to the Middle East region, which was really ushered, the whole peace process that he attempted to implement was really brought about by his son-in-law, okay, by Jared Kushner. And the problem is that part of the peace process was to give up land for peace. Land for peace has never worked. And it's never worked because when God on oath as a covenant uh, makes 300,000 square miles part of the title deed, and then people say, no, give up your 8,100 square miles, it just never works, you see. But what God did in his original covenant with Abraham was to say, now here's the signature to this covenant. I want you, God said to Abraham back in Genesis 17, to circumcise yourself, to circumcise Ishmael, and then later all the rest of the Jews that would be born to the seed of Abraham. Abraham was 99 years old. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? There's, there's been no other ritual or rite like this before. And so here's Abraham. He's like 99 going, tell me again what you want me to do, God. Yeah. Not sure I'm following you on this one. Why do you, why do you want me to do that? You know, okay. 
Here's why God wanted him to do that. Because if you think, well, that, is, that seems kind of a weird thing. You know, why is circumcision a sign of the covenant? Genesis 17, 11, specifically, God said to Abraham, circumcision will be a sign of my covenant to you. Here's the reason why. There's two reasons, all right? Number one, because God never wants us to rely on the flesh. So it is a cutting away of the flesh as a reminder, you are never to rely on the flesh. You are to rely on me. There's a second reason why circumcision was a sign of the covenant, okay? Because God asked Abraham and every successive generation, and it's renewed right here in Genesis chapter 5, God's instruction to Joshua to do this, because an entire generation of males had come out of Egypt that that were born in the wilderness that had not been circumcised. God says, I want you to put a knife to the place of reproduction, so that you will always remember that you are my children and that you are to reproduce children after you who will honor me also. So there was a reason for it. As, as barbaric, you know, like, why, why would God, part of the covenant, the signs, say, I want you to do this, okay? And, and now, you know, in, in, in many countries, it's, 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 including in America, it's more of an hygienic, a hygienic thing. But, but the covenant, the sign of the covenant was, I want you to always remember you were never to rely on the flesh, and I want you to always remember by putting a knife to the place of reproduction that you are a people belonging to me and that you are to produce children who also belong to me. This is a covenant relationship. Now, as I mentioned, there are a few different covenants in the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant is only one of them. I won't take time to go over the various ones. But then I said there's one great covenant in the New Testament, right? Because remember when Jesus broke bread at that last Passover with his disciples. And he broke bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And he took the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. You see, the sign of the new covenant was the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross to purchase us from sin. God made a unilateral, unconditional promise that if you accept Jesus Christ and believe that his sacrifice on the cross and his shed blood was sufficient for you to pay for your sins and to accomplish for you what you could not do for yourself, you shall be saved. That's God's unilateral, unconditional promise. That's the last covenant. That's why, by the way, in our Bibles, we have old covenant, okay? Genesis to Malachi, new covenant, Matthew to Revelation, because it's a separation of the previous covenants having been fulfilled in the ultimate covenant that Jesus Christ provided by virtue of his sacrifice on the cross. God is a covenant-keeping God. And God has made a new covenant with us that if we would humble ourselves and trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we might be saved. And he promises that. He says, your salvation... I enter into covenant with you, and I promise you eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. So, when we read here about all of this with circumcision, you have to understand covenant because this is a recommitting. They are recommitting their lives as consecrated unto God. We are a people set apart for your purposes. We are putting the knife to the flesh of the men to remember never to rely on the flesh and at the place of reproduction that we are a people, a children belonging to you. And so, uh, God instructs Joshua, you do 
this there in Gilgal. Before there's any conquest, there has to be consecration here. And so in verse 8, and so it was that when they had finished circumcising all the people, that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Okay, now how long did that take? We don't know. Maybe, maybe you know, a couple of weeks. I don't know. But, but that's why it's good that the, the, the heart of the kings who were enemies of the Israelites had melted because they're just paralyzed with fear. And God is using that as a time to bring healing to his own people because there's, there's no warfare yet. So these guys are well protected by the Lord while they're healing. And verse 9, then the Lord said to Joshua, this day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And the third thing is Gilgal is a place for removing the reproach of Egypt. Now this is a play on words because Gilgal in Hebrew means to roll away, to roll away. And so the very place where they're staying in Hebrew, means roll away. It can also mean circle because, you know, the, a circle and, and rolling, the whole idea of something circular rolling. But he's using this as a play on words. God saying, you're here in Gilgal, a place that means roll away because today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. You know, th- there's a, there was obviously a stigma attached to them after they had been 400 years in slavery. And, and the Lord comes along and says, no more. Now, here, here's what I love about this. Because in a similar way, I don't know what your, what your personal past is, and, what, and I know what my personal past is, but in terms of like the reputation we had or the sin that we've committed and the stuff we've done in the past, the beautiful thing about coming into relationship with Jesus is that he rolls away the reproach of our past. There's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So whatever you may have done in the past, when you come into relationship with Jesus, as far as he's concerned, he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. So there's no more reproach about your life in the eyes of God. You're a new creature in him, redeemed, forgiven. And so verse, uh, therefore, the rest of verse 10, therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Verse 10, now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal. And kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. So notice in verse 10, this is number uh, four in our list. There's rejoicing now. They're going to celebrate the feast of Passover right here at Gilgal. Do you remember what it was, when it was that they left Egypt when they were slaves? It was Passover. When they left Egypt, it was the first Passover. That's when God said, I want you to sprinkle the blood of the lambs on the doorposts of the lintels of your home. And, and when I see the blood, I will pass over your homes, Pesach. I will pass over your homes and I will not bring death to your families. It's a picture again of the blood of Christ. When we come under the blood of Jesus and we come into relationship with him, then death does not come to us. Yes, physical death, but our spirit goes to be with the Lord forever. God passes over us. There's no judgment against us because we come in the righteousness of Christ and the righteousness of the son whom he loves. So it was Passover when they left Egypt. And now in God's perfect timing, it's Passover when they enter the promised land. It's the 14th day of Nisan. And so they're going to rejoice in the goodness of the Lord, and they're going to celebrate the Passover here. And then verse 11 says, and they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. 
Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. So no more Krispy Kreme donuts, I'm sorry to say. You know, manna in Hebrew just literally translates, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. And God would, would you know, cover the landscape through the wilderness with, it's a mixture of coriander seed, and it was this sweet, like, wafer substance that they would take off every day, every morning, uh, only twice the day before the Sabbath, so they wouldn't have to do it on Sabbath. And they would skim it off and take it off the ground, and they would eat it. That's how God sustained them, that and quail. It, what we're talking about is Krispy Kreme and Chick-fil-A, friends. And uh, that's what God did. I'm just telling you, that's what the Message Bible says, I'm sure. But anyway, uh, but God sustained them. Now they're in the promised land, and now the manna stops on the day they enter the promised land. Why? Because God's going to be faithful to provide for them now in the land. And so they, Gilgal represents a, a, a time of relying upon the Lord. Because now they're going to feed off the land, off the sustenance that God is providing for them. Because now they're in the promised land. No more manna is necessary. They can rely on God for food from the land. And verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked and behold... A man, now notice, I'm reading New King James, but man is capitalized. Notice that. A man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Notice also the pronouns, his, are capitalized. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And so he said, no, neither. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord, Adon in Hebrew, what does my Lord say to his servant? And then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Is that directive not familiar? Do you remember that God told Moses the same thing when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3? Take off your sandals because the place where you're standing, you're in my presence. I want you to know that you're standing on holy ground. Take off your sandals. Which tells us something about this encounter. Because if the same language is used from God speaking to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, as it is here when this captain of the Lord's army says this to Joshua, what we have here in the last part of chapter 5 is something in theological terms called a Christophany. This is an appearance of the Lord himself. This is Christ who's taken on flesh. We have to remember that even though Jesus is born of a virgin in the New Testament, that's only when God takes on flesh to enter the human race to die for the sins of the world. But Jesus has always coexisted because he is God with God. Jesus and God are co-eternal, co-equal, and they've always coexisted along with the Holy Spirit. God is one God who reveals himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are times in the Old Testament, this is one of them, when God takes on a human appearance, otherwise known as the second part of the Trinity. This is Jesus. So when we read here about the commander of the army of the Lord, this is how he identifies himself. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. I have now come. This is an appearance of the Lord. He's coming here. And Joshua has to realize that this place also represents the last one on our list. 
Gilgal is a place for resigning. He's resigning to the authority now of the Lord himself. He's surrendering here. He is uh, acknowledging because Joshua falls on his face when he realizes this is none other than the Lord my God. And he calls him Adon in the Hebrew. This is the Lord. He, he, he resigns himself to the Lord's leadership here, to the Lord's authority. He surrenders to him. But I love the question, don't you? So Joshua, before they take Jericho, is gazing up towards Jericho. And he sees a man. Now it's capitalized because this is the Lord, but he doesn't realize it's the Lord. So when he sees this guy with drawn sword, his question to him is, are you on our side or are you on the enemy's side? I just need to know whose side are you on? Do you know how many times we do that with God? Do you know how many times, think about it in your life, where you've gotten ahead of God and then you want to know, is God on your side? Well, wait a minute, that's not the right question. Are you on my side, God? You know, and how many times has this, you know, theologically happened too? You know, I, you know, I hear people who get into this kind of a tussle and they're like, God, you know, are you a Calvinist God or are you Arminian? I want to know, are you Republican or are you Democrat? I want to know, are you on our side or are you on their side? Hey, we're asking the wrong questions. The question we should be asking is, Lord, am I on your side? How are you leading and how can I get on your team? That's what we need to be asking. Joshua at first is wanting to know, are you on my team or are you on the enemy's team? And the Lord says, you're asking the wrong question. Neither. He says, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. I'm the one in charge, Joshua. And I want you to know that. And when Joshua realizes this, then he resigns himself and surrenders to the lordship of the Lord. This is what we need to be about. Sometimes we want to know if God will bless our endeavors. What we really need to be about is, Lord, what are you up to? And let me get in on what you're up to. Um, I've been asked many times over now 30 years that I've been pastoring here at Cornerstone, you know, particularly from other pastors, like, what, what was your five-year plan? And, you know, how did things happen and explode a cornerstone? Here's what I always said to them. I don't, I don't have a five-month plan. Are you kidding me? And not that I've always done it right, for sure. But one of the things that Pastor Chuck Smith always, you know, tried to instill in us Calvary Chapel pastors is, you don't get ahead of God. You look to see what he's up to, and then you get in on that. If you follow his lead, this is so true for us personally in our lives. If you look for where God is leading and follow him, it goes far better for us than if we try to get ahead of God and then hope that he'll bless it. It's not which side are you on. It's, Lord, am I following after you? Because you are the commander of the army of Israel, and you are the Holy One. You are God Almighty. You are the Lord. You are omnipotent. You are king. You are majestic in all your ways. God, help me to follow you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. We'll pick it up there next week. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for just a reminder of these different things, how Gilgal represents all these different things that relate to our own lives today. 
And especially on this last point, Lord, we pray that we would be men and women and young people who would surrender to you. Who would resign ourselves to your lordship. That instead of wondering if if you're going to bless our endeavors, Lord, may we always be seeking you to, to try to understand what are you up to and how can we follow you? How can we get in on what you're doing? Give us eyes to see that, Lord. That you are the commander of the army of Israel. You are the Holy One. You are God Almighty. You are Lord. You are King. Forgive us when we try to take matters into our own hands. May we not rely on the flesh. May we continue to seek you and your ways. That you would order our steps. That you would take the lead and that we would follow you all the days of our lives, Lord. Because when you're out front, it goes far better for us than if we try to take the lead. So guide us, Lord, direct us. Help us to always be in a posture of surrender towards you, following after you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.